Welcome, fellow travelers, to another episode of Fate's Wide Wheel. I'm your host, Sam Fain, and I am joined once again, thankfully, gratefully, by J.J. Lindell. J.J., how are you? I am well. Happy holidays, my friend. Happy holidays to you as well. We've got our teas. It is... Seven o'clock <laughs> on uh, East, yeah, exactly Eastern time. It's eight o'clock, right? Uh, on Thursday, December twenty first. So we're just a few short days away from the Christmas holiday. Um, for those that celebrate, uh, today is winter solstice, the longest night of the year. Um, definitely talking about cool stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, magic is in the air, um, and we have got an episode that I am so incredibly psyched about because. We get to talk about the Twilight Zone, and it's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. Um, And we will be getting to that a little bit later. We're going to discuss Night of the Meek, which is a classic episode, perfect episode for this time of year. Um, And I cannot wait to share uh, with folks the poster that you've designed because I think it is fantastic uh you just you sent me the picture of it and that was my response i just couldn't think of any other response it's just so perfect um so i'm really looking forward to doing that uh and we also have a couple other things i think worth talking about um I dropped a mid-season overview slash review kind of episode um well, pretty much as we record this so you haven't had a chance to actually see it or hear it yet that's news to me but uh, I, I meant to I meant to drop it yesterday on Wednesday, like the regular release schedule goes, you know, for the episodes following the airing uh, of the show. But I have just been slammed lately. It feels like, you know, there's yeah. there's been something going on constantly. Um, and so I didn't get a chance to get it out yesterday, which, you know, which I think is fine. I don't think viewers or listeners are, are too upset. And if you are, leave a comment below. Let me know. Um, but, uh, I want to hear, but I would love to, t- I would love, right. I would love to take an opportunity, uh, JJ, to hear what your overall impressions were now that we've got the first eight episodes and we're on that mid season break for quantum leap season two. Oh, that's a great question. All right. I have no thoughts prepared, so let's, let's go <laughs> off the top here. Um, I feel like the season is flying by is what I'm going to say. Um, you know, we've got eight episodes and it's, it's a, and and when I say flying by, I I mean that as a compliment because it's a show that seems to be chugging at full steam. And, um, it's pretty amazing to think, you know, as of, you know, this past week with the airing of uh, season two, episode eight, Nomad, how far we've come since the end of last season in just those eight episodes yeah. where so many characters are in different places emotionally, um, relationship wise. Um, and we've, you know, fully integrated two new regular characters into the story. Um, so hats off to, um, Dean and Martin and, you know, the, the rest of the quantum leap team for taking the show and sort of building out the mythology over the course of the last couple of months. Um, and, you know, everything that they've added, um, I think has been a positive for the show. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a show where every week is different and that's one of my favorite types of shows to watch. And, you know, that's sort of built into the DNA. Um, but on top of that, as opposed to keeping the formula of the show itself the same, they're switching things up. They're changing the character dynamics. They're, um, 
they're messing a little bit, I think, with um, what the audience expectations are, again, in a good way. And, like, I appreciate that as well. Um, so I, I'm, I just feel like they've upped their game this season. And, um, you know, of the eight episodes that have aired so far, I think probably at least three of them are in my top five for the series overall at this point, which I think just, at least for me personally, shows that the production is hitting, you know, its its stride. It's like, Absolutely. It's, it's peaking and peaking. So what, do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, since I haven't... You know, if you want to give me the the quick pay by play because I haven't seen yeah. the video. <laughs> um, genuinely, uh, I, I echoed a lot of what you said. Um, I, I think the the focus on on character, seeing these characters develop and grow, and the new relationships form, or you know, old relationships get rekindled, um, even the stuff that obviously has happened off screen. You know, I think of the relationship between Ian and Rachel, for instance, and obviously, so much of that relationship happened off screen. Um, right. Now, obviously, it, it it doesn't hurt when you have Mason's real life partner playing the role because there's going to be some chemistry there. Yes, Although that's not always the case. Right. Yeah, that's not, true. You know, sometimes right. sometimes that happens, and you're just sort of like, wow, these these people like each other in real life. But um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but with Allison Mason, I mean, it's very it is it, it is palpable, and so I think that that certainly lends itself to, um, you know, imagining what took place off screen, but, but the, the overall arc of the relationship that we have seen on screen um, and the way that it's developed and, 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 and where it's gone this season, um, I think is just a small example. I mean, obviously the bigger examples are of course, like Ben and Hannah, Ben and Addison, Addison, Tom, um, right. even Beth and magic, but um, right. the, the overall nature of this season feeling kind of just like a, a love story uh, about love, the nature of love, what love like means, a, you know, and a little bit of a triangle. And, yeah, right, well. right. Yeah. Um, and uh and so yeah, I, I just I I I agree um completely. I, I even agree with your assessment about the three episodes. For me personally, that that would be four, six, and eight, Lonely Hearts Club, Secret History, and Nomad, I think were the three episodes that I would point to as being my favorite of the season. Um you stole my you know, stuff. That's yeah. <laughs> I love closure encounters. That's exactly um, what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I thought this took too long was incredibly strong as well. Um, you know, I did mention because I, I wanted to try to just be very direct with my assessments. I did mention that I thought that um, uh, Ben and Teller was probably the weakest episode of the season, although it was responsible for one of the strongest moments of the season, which is when Ben realizes that Addison has moved on. And, um, you know, I thought one night in Koreatown, while again, having some incredibly powerful moments, um, felt a little uneven to me overall. Um, and then a kind of magic, very similar, had some really great moments. I enjoyed the overall plot and the story. I thought that there was some, you know, some, some wonderful acting, but it definitely felt like compared to the other episodes, certainly one of the weaker episodes. And part of that, I think, is also being sandwiched in between Secret History and Nomad. You know, it's like two of the strongest episodes. I, 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 I mean... You know, I would put Secret History and Nomad up against a, a large number of the original series episodes, even, you know what I mean? And right. so to have, you know, to be in between those episodes is kind of an unenviable position in some ways. So, 
yeah, those are my overall thoughts. You know, I, and I think the addition, of course, of, of Eliza Taylor's Hannah has been just brilliant. Uh, the three-year time jump was a fantastic idea. I was not sold on Tom or Peter, the actor who plays Tom, initially. Um, it, it really took some time to start to warm up to him. But, you know, by the time we got to uh, Secret History and, and seeing his performance there and seeing the way the character was treated there, it, it was kind of like, okay, I'm now, now I'm sold, um, yeah, which is nice. Yeah, really brought and, it. Yeah. And in a yeah. way, one of the things that I remarked on is it's like, I, I'm sitting here kind of thinking, oh, I don't know about this character, but we'd really only seen him twice before Secret History. So in the course of three episodes, he went from being a character that I wasn't entirely sold on to being a character that I'm 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 on board with now. And if you kind of contextualize that with some other shows and some mm-hmm. other actors that have joined shows or whatever, and how long it takes generally to kind of get in or whatever, it, I mean, it, it it's one of those things where you do have to kind of sit back and, and when you contextualize it that way, you're just sort of like, wow, you know, he, he's done a remarkable job. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'd echo that, and you know. Uh, I think, like you know, a character in a in a film or a TV show is an amalgamation of a lot of parts. It's part performance, part writing, part direction of the episode and editing, and and all of those Absolutely. things. But in referring to, um, you know, Tom's as a character, um, I think that just that phrase itself, it would be very easy for him in the position that he's in, in the story to not be a character, but simply be an obstacle. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you can credit all of those pieces, the writing and, and the performance, especially in secret history where you have, you know, he's in this position where he's an obstacle to Ben. He's an obstacle to maybe the audience's desire to have Ben and Addison together. And then you really flesh this character out and you create depth and you create sympathy and, you know, after watching that episode, I think a lot of people in the audience were hopefully a little more open to him or confused about what they wanted to see happen. And that's when I was saying like, they're messing with audience expectations. That's one of the key things that I was thinking about was Tom. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm absolutely with you with with that. I, I thought of one other thing while you were talking about sort of what you were thinking were the, were the stronger and then what you thought were maybe the weaker episodes of the season. And it made me think of the fact that, you know, some of the stronger episodes, at least, um, you know, Nomad and Secret History, you could almost think of them as being, you know, to, to use an X-Files term, more mythology episodes. Because with, you know, with the introduction of Hannah, we're sort of being introduced to this new element of the mythology of the show, this overarching idea You know, it has to do with, you know, why is he traveling in time? Why is he putting things right? What power is controlling it? The idea that he's being brought together with this other kindred spirit. And um, I think it is hard for when you introduce that kind of um, concept into a weekly series, when you are sort of taking a break from it during a week, Sometimes that can feel like there's a little bit of um, idling happening. Uh, And, you know, and that's unfortunate because I think, you know, episodes like, um, you know, I I think that uh, the uh, Koreatown episode is a perfect example. It's sort of sandwiched between these these ideas. And um, I think that that episode is great, but you're, you're sort of 
focusing on these other aspects of the show at that point as well. And I think that's, you know, in, in X-Files circles, there are like mythology fans and there are monster of the week fans. And there's a little bit of that happening, I think, in the show really centered around uh, Hannah's character. Because when she's in play, it it sort of, it changes the tone of of the story that we're watching. Um, Absolutely. And at least, at least for me, it sort of gets your attention. So, um, and I'm yeah. wondering the, the second half of this season, how that's going to play out. No, I, I would completely agree with that. And I would even go on, on to add that. I think it, it's funny because I was literally thinking about this, uh, the X-Files specifically when it comes to this uh, earlier, because I, I saw a couple of social media threads about filler episodes and I think it all started with a comment that was thrown out about, uh, you know, with a negative perspective on filler episodes and, and, okay. and just the term in general using that term. Yeah. And then some of the responses to it, um, you know, were, were very much in, in defense of the notion of, you know, one, I wouldn't even necessarily call them filler episodes. And two, you know, whatever you call them, they're just as viable as the rest of the series. And the funny yeah. thing is, is one of the people that was, you know, kind of defending this idea was J. Michael Straczynski, which arguably Babylon 5 did not really have a lot of what you would call filler episodes. You know, sure. that that yeah. narrative arc was really, you know, a testament to a continuing serialized storyline in many ways. And you look at the X-Files and the funny thing about the X-Files is that in the first three or four seasons, a lot of those mythology episodes are fantastic. Undeniably, mm -hmm. they were very, you know, they grabbed you, they, they, they drew you in, they were creating this world and, you know, you wanted to know what was going to happen next. However, I would certainly argue, and I think, a, I would, I would guess a majority of X-Files fans might agree with this that the monster of the week episodes are often stronger episodes top to bottom than a lot, especially a lot of the latter half of the series mythology episodes. The episode itself is like a stronger episode. So sure. I think finding that balance is obviously very difficult. And I think in the context of quantum leap, going back to one night in Koreatown, for instance, I go back and forth in my head. There are times when I'm just sort of like, man, that was a great episode you know, top to bottom, no quibbles. And then there are other times I'm just sort of like, eh, you know, maybe there were some, it was uneven in, in, in certain instances or whatever. And I mean, who am I to really critique it? But I think that, you know, I do think that there's, um, that there's a difficulty in telling a story like that to begin with, but also even, even devoid of any kind of social commentary. I think that, you know, these individual leap stories that get to focus more on the leap, you look back at like, this took too long, for instance. And I feel like this took too long is an excellent template. And One Night in Koreatown didn't necessarily get that because there was a lot of, you know, project stuff, a lot of stuff with with magic going on. Right. So right. One Night in Koreatown didn't necessarily get the benefit of having the bulk of the, you know, this 42 minutes to focus on the leap and maybe, sure. you know, when you're going to do episodes like that, maybe, you know, taking the time to, to just stick with the leap story a little bit more, you know, it, I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I, I, again, overall, the season's incredibly strong and, and, and I would rewatch any one of these episodes with joy 
except for maybe Ben and Teller. And, um, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, sticking it to Ben and Teller. Um, <laughs> but, but even a kind of magic, it was, you know, again, I think that it's the reason why that phrase comparison is the death of joy comes back to me again and again, because the truth of the matter is, is in a vacuum, I would absolutely enjoy a kind of magic. I would absolutely enjoy one night in Koreatown when stacked up against the rest of the season, which is a testament to how strong the rest of the season is. I feel like they don't necessarily measure up to you know secret history lonely hearts club or nomad you know what i mean i yeah i i absolutely i i totally get what you're saying and uh and yeah i i I would agree to a large extent um i think that they're quantum leap is a it's got to be such a challenging show to write because you know even it's in its original iteration because Mm. you're introducing the entire world every week and not every show is like that you know you're introducing new characters and you're introducing new situations but you're literally introducing an entirely new world every week and you have to create the beginning the middle and the end of a story and you know talking about the monster of the week episodes and the x-files i mean that was their strength they told a complete story and then they walked away to the next one whereas with the mythology episodes Yes, it kept people coming back to the show because they wanted to see how this strange conspiracy was going to unwind over years. But that was sort of its undoing as well, because that story ended up not being as cohesive toward the end. Yeah. Um, so I mean, especially yeah, was, when Duchovny, you know, left, I think it was really difficult to kind of continue that story because so much of that story was focused on. Sure. Fox Mulder and his past and his family. And, you know, so yeah, and if you want to get into it for the X-Files, I mean, um, after the seventh season, which was the last season where of the original run where Duchovny was a regular, they tied up a, a lot of loose ends with the mythology. But the show continued because for a number of reasons in that it was popular, you know, the people who made it wanted to continue making it. But they were forced to sort of pivot into some new territory, and they had to pivot understanding that David Duchovny would not be a regular anymore. So it sort of really started the beginning of a new story. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, is the audience going to come with us as we pivot to sort of uh, a new premise for the show? And the answer ended up being sort of, but (laughs) sort of, kind of, um, the dream, I think, of, of Chris Carter and, and the team at that point, and then later, even when the show came back in 2016, was that they could not only pivot to a new story, but to pivot to new protagonists. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the thing that they didn't understand at that point, and maybe even more recently, is that for a large majority of the fan base, The X-Files isn't just paranormal investigations. It is the story of Box Mulder. And Dana Scully. Yeah. And that relationship was, yeah. Um, Which, of course, is the dilemma that the Quantum Leap revival encountered as well. Because for a Mm -hmm. lot of people, Quantum Leap was the story of Sam Beckett and Al Calavici. And so, is there a way that you can continue to tell these stories without these beloved characters? And I think Quantum Leap is a great example of a show that has figured out how to do that. And part of what they've done is tried to change the formula a bit. And in introducing more stuff happening in the present, um, and in this season particularly, I mean, you're talking about a lot of instances where I think the makers of the show are trying to create a stronger connection between project stories and leap stories. Um, Absolutely. 
And, you know, uh, One Night in Koreatown is a great example of that. You have something that's mm -hmm. happening to Ben in the past that shakes and affects one of the project members in the future. And you have these two stories sort of happening parallel, hand in hand. And I mean, I think ideally, if you're writing a script like that, whatever the denouement is, it sort of addresses both of those stories. Um, and I think that's what that episode was trying to do and did. But as you pointed out, you know, it's tough when you have to put that much into 41 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that really is a challenge. Um, so I give the writers a lot of credit for absolutely uh, for, for all that. And, you know, you're doing it on network television. You're doing it with time restraints that you wouldn't have if you were on streaming or if you were on premium cable. Um, and you're also talking about issues. Um, and, uh, so it is, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a it lot is. Yeah, it is. And, 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 you know, I think that one of the things that, that strikes me about the show, you know, in general, that episode specifically, you know, the writing overall is that there is a bravery to the work that they're doing, especially given the constraints that they have. And, you know, arguably, I look at, at, at like the Hollywood Critics Association um, nominations that they've gotten for, for uh, best show, um, uh, best writing for Let Them Play, which Shakina um, wonderfully penned. And then, um, best actor for Raymond Lee, of course. And, you know, you look at some of the folks that are, you know, share those categories, for instance, and you realize that in a category like that, it's, you know, network or cable, right? So mm -hmm. Quantum Leap is up against like the bear, you know, right. and, and the restrictions, the confines, the, the, you know, whatever we want to say that Quantum Leap has to operate within compared to a show like the bear, it's, it's a completely different, you know, ball game. And so, yeah. um, you know, and it's the same thing when you look at like some of the actors that Raymond Lee is up against, you're just sort of like, I mean, we're talking about, you know, like Kieran Culkin on succession. And it's like, that's a completely different, you know, it really like the victory as, as cliche as it might sound, the victory is really being nominated here because, you know, they're up against pay cable and cable television programs that do not, you know, operate in the same manner as a network show. Right. Um, so I yeah I think overall the, the 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 running theme ultimately has to be that for season two it's a huge victory that the writers the producers everyone involved the directors the actors have stepped it up the show has just leveled up overall and um I you know I'm so excited and so looking forward to the last five of the season um, yeah. and 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 you know and, and what's next because I just think that everyone is more than up to the task and most importantly is up to the task of of going even further, you know, and pushing it right. even more. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that season two is kind of where the show, you know, became what, what this show is and can be and, and the possibilities it represents and, you know, creating those worlds from week to week in, 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 in a way that they, you know, certainly did that in the first season, but now it's, there's just something about it that feels more, um, yeah. you know, and you look at Nomad and you look at shooting on Egypt in, in shooting in Egypt, for instance, um, and, and, and how that's such a huge step forward for the show too. So, um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, speaking of networks and cable and streaming and all the things, something else that, you know, you had brought up as a, as a subject to talk about, which I thought was a great idea. So I'll let you kind of go first. 
is that there are these rumors. I mean, I don't even know if you can call them rumors at this point, because it just seems to be that people are taking it as fact. I mean, you read even the articles in the trades and it's just sort of like, yeah, this is this is definitely a possibility um, that Warner Discovery and Paramount may end up merging. Now, I've heard it two ways. I've heard the word merger used, and then I've heard it just framed as Discovery is just going to buy Paramount um, yeah, and absorb right. Paramount into the right. whole, you know, Warner Discovery thing. It's obviously a very interesting situation for a multitude of reasons, not only, uh, you know, network, but streaming and, and physical media. Uh, there's a lot of implications. Um, so, JJ, what do you think? Well, yeah, I when that news came out, and it was you know if you're if you're following along sort of with studio news, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. Um, uh, Paramount Global um, has sort of you know there's been been talk over the last couple of weeks that. Um, the uh, the owner is 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 looking looking at uh, options um, to to possibly uh, sell either Paramount Global itself or the parent company, um, and it uh, it's something that I think unfortunately we're we're sort of used to at this point, especially in the, in the entertainment industry. I mean, we've had so many buyouts and mergers, um, over the last five years. Um, and, and even before that, um, you had Disney who was just picking up IP, you know, they, they buy Marvel studios, they buy Lucasfilm. Um, now they have bought, um, you know, bought out the, uh, the controlling stock in, in Hulu. So now when you, now when I log into my Disney plus at the top, it says, you want, want to watch Hulu? It's like, wait, which one did I open? Um, yeah. <laughs> And to say nothing of, you know, yeah, the Warner Brothers uh, Discovery uh, merger. Um, when when I heard the news of that, that it was um, Warner Brothers who was interested in a merger. And, you know, you mentioned, like, is it a merger? Is it a buyout? If it is a merger, it's not a merger of equals. Right. Because... Warner Brothers is over twice as as valued, yeah, so like three as, times the size, yeah, as Paramount Global. So they would definitely be in a position to dictate terms for that. Um, I saw reports that you know, and again, a lot of this is speculation at this point, especially how something like this would go about. Um, but uh, they would likely handle it similar to the way that that Disney handled their acquisition of uh, 20th century Fox. Um, and in, in terms of like, would, would this be something that would be stopped by, <laughs> by antitrust laws? Right. And, um, and a, a lot of people feel like it, it might not just because the world we're living in, it just feels like those antitrust laws aren't really, um, you know, being enforced uh, to, to say the least, but, um, which is strange. Uh, but, um, I don't know, Paramount Global and the reason why I was immediately like, whoa, is because they, they own a number of, you know, intellectual properties that I'm personally, um, have, have, uh, a stake in like Star yeah. Trek, right. um, that 
you know, we're going to talk about the Twilight Zone. They own the Twilight Zone. Um, they own Nickelodeon, which, you know, consists of a ton of IP, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. Um, and the thing for me that is a little concerning, the fact that Warner Brother Discovery is is interested in this, is that, you know, they have been very willing over the last year to do what I see as some pretty, uh, pretty non, um, non-creator and non-artist friendly moves in order to yeah. save some money. Um, there are a number of projects that were either completed or very close to completion, which they shelved um, in order to use as a tax write-off. This includes the, uh, the DC movie Batgirl, there was a Scooby-Doo film that was supposed to come out. Most recently, there was a um, a Looney Tunes movie, uh, Wile E. Coyote versus Acme, which mm-hmm. they've decided to scrap, even though it was completed, um, literally because they can basically say, hey, we spent money on this thing, but we're not going to make any profit from it because we are going to destroy it. And so any money that we spent, we can now claim as a tax write-off, which again is sort of like... How can I do that? Can I do that in my life? Like, <laughs> is that something that I can get away with on my taxes? No, of course not. <laughs> right, um, right. So, you know, those like, you know, possibly shady business practices aside, which which all the studios engage in. Um, but Warner has sort of upped the ante by like literally burying completed projects, taking projects off streaming in order to limit the amount of profits they could make from them and use that as a tax write-off. It's scary to me that a lot of this really you know, at least personally, um, valuable intellectual property, all these franchises might fall under that kind of jurisdiction because, um, you know, I would hate to see, you know, Star Trek projects canceled mid-production. I would hate to see, um, any, you know, archival episodes or anything like that taken off of streaming because they don't want to pay royalties out to people. So when you have a company that has shown sort of what business practices they're willing to engage in over the last year, um, yeah. interested in, you know, so many really beloved, you know, film and, and television productions, it's, it's a little scary from my perspective. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess we have to see if this is a real thing, if these discussions move forward. And if the government has anything to say about these two large studios coming together, um, from what I was reading, it seemed like the reason why this might move forward as opposed to another deal would be that um, Paramount Global has a television network attached to it, which is CBS, Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, Warner does not. Um, Because, and this is connected to Quantum Leap, there was rumors that um, NBC Universal was perhaps interested in Paramount as well, but that might be a harder sell in mm-hmm. terms of the antitrust laws because Universal owns NBC, Paramount right. and CBS. Two of the three major networks would be under the same umbrella, and that's yeah. sort of a red flag. But with a Warner Absolutely. deal, that wouldn't be the case. So maybe that would be enough to get it past the regulators. I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, Paramount is going to change Paramount. Somebody is going to buy Paramount in the next couple of years. They've taken on a lot of debt. 
Um, it's not just going to be business as usual, as usual. And if you're not Disney plus and uh, if you're not Netflix, then you're, you're trying to survive right now in the streaming world. And yeah. so I think regardless, we are going to see some of these streamers merge or fall to the wayside or both. Um, so it's just a matter of where, where Paramount Global ends up. And I'm just hoping that it ends up, you know, under a studio head that values the art of it and not just, not just the, uh, the bottom line. Obviously that's a huge concern because you want to keep making stuff, but sure. I, I don't think that, you know, taking the work that, you know, hundreds of professionals have worked years on and burying it for a tax write-off. I, I don't think that in the long run, that's going to benefit your company, but I feel yeah. like it's all just short-term actions right now with these folks. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that is probably the most concerning to me, uh, you know, as you mentioned, is that, you know, Warner Discovery and, and David Zaslav in particular have had absolutely no problems, um, you know, axing stuff that's, that's already been finished. It's already been it's made. Crazy. Um, it's insane. yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the thing that's, the thing that's most disconcerting is that I, if, if Warner Discovery had already been responsible for Paramount in any way over the past, you know, six or seven years, let's say, Star Trek Discovery probably doesn't make it past season two. And if yeah, Discovery and doesn't make right. it, and if Discovery doesn't make it past season two or even make it to season two, do we even get Strange New Worlds? Well, if it doesn't make it to season two, we absolutely don't because, right? you know, you know, yeah, it's a you know, for right. all kinds of purposes of discovery. You know, I, I just think that, you know, to speak specifically to the Star Trek franchise for a moment, I think that it is absolutely concerning. And sure, we can talk about the fact that Prodigy, for instance, already has suffered, you know, due to the, the, the machinations of the studio, etc. But but ultimately, I, I think that what Paramount has done and, 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 and the investment Paramount has in the franchise overall has benefited Star Trek and Star Trek fans. Sure. And, you know, I wonder if that would be the same case once Warner Discovery takes over. You know, the interesting thing is, is that there are some properties that Warner Discovery has rights to, but they don't actually own. And so it makes me wonder if perhaps this is a way for them to actually own more properties, because technically they don't own Transformers, for instance. Technically, they don't own the Harry Potter franchise. You know what I mean? Technically, they don't even own Lord of the Rings. So the, yeah. so the idea is, is it's like now they can have these intellectual properties that they can actually own right. in the same way that Disney owns Star Wars or Disney owns, you know, whatever. And so I, 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 I think maybe I wonder how much that might have to do with it. And so you might look at Star Trek as being a big selling point for Paramount and, and, and a reason why Warner's interested. So maybe there isn't a, a concern there, but I think overall what, what they've done over the past year or so has been very concerning and has reinforced that idea. And something that I've mentioned before on the show is that you don't have creative types. You don't have artists specifically calling these shots. You have sure. business people. That's right. fine because it is a business and you need to have business people and you need to have that know-how, but coming from a world where at one time, 
creative types and artists were studio heads and studio executives and had say in these decisions and you know and the accountants and and and, and such were under them in some way providing advice sometimes good advice sometimes bad advice it's just a stark contrast to what we used to see and that's not to say that projects weren't canceled or that projects weren't shot direct to video or projects weren't you know only opened in 10 theaters instead of 150 or whatever but ultimately there was there was a little bit more artistic integrity than than we see now and that is certainly concerning you know i want to pivot for a moment to physical media i think one of the things that's kind of interesting here is that paramount has has been pretty friendly to boutique labels as far mm -hmm. as licensing out their films um you know criterion kino lower you know lower the, there's been a number of boutique labels that have um produced beautiful you know, Blu-rays of, of Paramount films. Um, Warner brothers, not so much. And right. Warner brothers has absolutely produced a, they used to produce a large quantity of quality releases, especially like on their Warner archive label. But this is a, another dimension of exactly what you're talking about. Um, Warner archives was sort of a jewel in the crown. Of mm hmm of studio physical media for years. Um, but with, with the merger with Dis discovery, yep. it has completely changed. They shut down their website. Um, you, they, you have them available through Amazon. Now they've slowed their production. Uh, they've, you know, really curtailed special features and a lot of the things that you used to, to find on these releases. And again, it, it's because of this sort of new corporate culture. Yeah. Um, and you see it with, um, you know, Turner classic movies as well, which is under the Warner brothers umbrella. And, um, you know, they've cut staff there. They've cut, um, they've cut funding. Um, if I do want to value the history of the studio, um, and if they don't value the present of the studio by canceling these projects for tax write-offs, do they value the studio at all? Or yeah. is the studio, is it just a pawn in a larger corporate game? And, and that's, that's a problem. Well, and it's interesting because speaking, you know, strictly to the, the again, the physical media side of things, one of the things that I, I found fascinating is that they have, when, when Warner has wanted to release, you know, quality stuff, they can do that, obviously, especially sure. with um, like the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca being two great examples in, you know, 4K Ultra HD releases that are among the best of, of any black and white films that you're going to see in, in the format and, you know, loaded with special features, incredible special features. However, more than likely, those were in production and being done prior to Discovery's takeover. Yes. Yeah. Very likely. But again, like listen but, to the films that you're talking about. Like right, these are but, some of the most famous films in history. Um, but here's where it gets interesting, though, because then you look at the more recent releases of Rio Bravo and The Exorcist, which look really good, sound really good, completely devoid of the extra special features and materials right. that their that their Blu-ray and even DVD releases before them had. Right. And that is definitely a concern because yeah. it's it's one thing to press a 4K Ultra HD disc with a great print because you're Warner Brothers and you can obviously, you know, 
justify that print because you're going to make money off of it. But to put the extra care and effort to create something that is going to feel archival to a consumer and and to not be able to, you know, to do that and to also be stingy with, you know, licensing out your titles to boutique labels that are willing to go through that. Right. I think it is a concern for physical media collectors and 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 knowing that the format, in spite of people trying to, you know, shake the death rattle at, at, at physical media at, at every turn, we're seeing that that is absolutely not the case. I mean, you just look at the Oppenheimer, you know, release, for instance. Right. Um, but it, it, to me. I think it's all it's all so connected, you, you know, whether we're talking about streaming, the intellectual properties, the the what's going to happen with CBS and the type of programming CBS is going to produce. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 I cannot help but be concerned, you know, as someone who enjoys um, the properties that Paramount as the you know the they they've done some really wonderful releases as well they've had their paramount um presents label um of 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 you know 4k and 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 blu-ray and so i i don't know i i definitely think that there there's a lot of trepidation you know as someone as a viewer um as a consumer if you will but um i also don't know kind of like what you were saying that there's much that can stop something like this, even right. on a you know I, I government mean, level. Yeah, I mean, like pa Paramount Global is going to be there's going to be a merger or an acquisition in the next couple of years, no matter what. It, it seems to be the case. I mean, they're shopping it around, and so it's just a matter of where where the studio and where the network and you know all of all of these films and television shows and and ongoing productions where they land, and yeah. it's just. You know, just given Warner's track record since, you know, since the uh, acquisition by Discovery and that merger, it's just like, yeah, I, I think, you know, best case scenario for me is like, maybe there's another buyer out there. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't um, I don't know either. I know, I, we'll you see. know, at one time, at one time, I thought that um, wasn't Amazon interested. Wasn't that one well, of the rumors going around? Well, the the most recent rumor was yeah there was an Amazon rumor and then there was an NBC Universal rumor and it seemed like the NBC Universal rumor was the one that sort of woke Warner Discovery up it's mm. like what oh they're thinking about oh no we can't have that right. because again you've got these you know you've got the leaders of streaming right now which is you know arguably it's Netflix and it's Disney Plus and then you've got everybody else and you know, when, uh, you know, Warner hears that, oh, two of our major competitors are thinking about merging, that's bad news for us. Um, right. And, you know, they, they've been, again, again, these are all just known facts for, for uh, you know, the last, you know, uh, months and, and it is, the, the, you know, Warner is looking to expand because they have to. And Paramount, <laughs> Paramount is looking, looking to be sold. And so you're just going to see a lot of this happening. Yeah. And the question is like, when all the dust settles with these streaming wars, are we going to have more than two or three studios left? Right. I don't know. Yeah. And that's not good for anyone. It's not good right. for consumers. It's not good for, you know, it's not good for the folks who work at these studios because the less options out there for jobs, 
you know, you're going to have less bargaining power. You're, you, you know, it's, there's so many problems in, inherent to this. And ultimately, I think in the long run, it's not going to be good for the studios or the corporations themselves who are, you know, they're all trying to get a piece of this pie and they're using such short-sighted methods to do so. And it reminds me, I don't, you know, what the analogy is. It's like the pharaohs, like burying their riches with them. It's like, if I can just be profitable every quarter until I, you know, pull my golden parachute, then I'm good. And right. I can just watch the city burn, you know, around me because um, I'm getting out of there. It's sort of what it feels like to me. Um, Absolutely. And that's, again, that's scary. So um, I feel like we need a palate cleanser uh, after talking about... <laughs> I, the, I think so too. Merger stuff. If only there was like a timely seasonal story that would bring an uplifting feeling uh, to our souls right now. Um, if can only. you think of anything? If only. Um, well, George Bailey. No, uh, wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong show. Uh, no, look, you know, I, I, I think this is kind of a, a perfect segue in many ways, because uh, here sitting next to me, I have this beautiful piece of physical media produced <gasps> by Paramount, you know, uh, of the Twilight Zone on Blu-ray, all 156 episodes. This is this is the kind of treatment, especially that a show like the Twilight Zone deserves. You know, all these episodes are remastered. Incredible video, incredible audio, special features, commentaries. Too um, many special features. Oh, yeah, there are. It's, it's true. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the original pilot version with Rod Sterling's sponsor pitch. You've got uh, interviews and, and, and just, you know, some wonderful radio dramas and, and, and lots of really wonderful stuff, wonderful content. Um, so we are indeed going to talk about the Twilight Zone. And, uh, and, and it's funny because I mentioned George Bailey and, uh, one of the things of course that, uh, uh, has been said about it's a wonderful life is how it is a somewhat of a, a, a dry run for twilight zone in many ways. Uh, it, it feels that way. Uh, obviously Rod Sterling had nothing to do with it, but, um, but I, 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 I also mentioned it because it's one of my favorite films uh, ever and, and, and I adore it. Um, and I think that, uh, there are a couple of other films uh, that came out around the same time, also holiday films. There's one repeat performance, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, which is currently yeah, yeah. streaming on the Criterion channel. Um, and it, it, it is a, a fascinating film in many ways. Also feels kind of like a, a holiday twilight zone um, with a, a character having to repeat an entire year, um, you know, and, and it's focused around stuff that happens and occurs at a Christmas party and a new year's Eve party. And um and then, of course, the Twilight Zone itself, once uh, it did premiere and, and changed the game in many, many ways, um, they did a, a Christmas episode in the second season. And that episode is Night of the Meek. Uh, it's a brilliant episode. It's a beautiful episode. It's a classic episode of the series uh, amidst a run of classic episodes. I mean, it aired in close proximation to to a number of, of just eye of the beholder uh uh you know amongst them uh, you know there, there were some excellent episodes at, at that time um and kind of the sweet spot of the show um so we're going to talk about night of the meek and jj you have worked up a a poster for this with some incredible art would you like Thank to share you. that yeah I'll, I'll bring that up uh, yeah, so please. 
you know, Sam, you had mentioned about, about like maybe wanting to cover this episode. And, um, and so I, when I had some time, I, I rewatched it. It had been a long time since I'd seen it. Um, it's been a long time since I pulled out my Twilight Zone Blu-ray. So it's always <laughs> a nice excuse to do that. Um, and so I went through a, a couple iterations of here, but this is where we ended up. there she is so lovely so perfect i mean it's obviously rockwellian um yes and, and <laughs> you know specifically it's inspired by you know the old saturday evening uh post the the uh weekly magazine um which for me you know when i think of it i think of rockwell who who did a, a ton of cover art for it and he did such beautiful christmas uh cover art um absolutely for, a number of issues and, and not just him other really great artists of, of the time in the the um really 30s 40s and and 50s um and so i wanted to sort of emulate that and uh sort of bring a santa to the to a cover that uh you hadn't seen before and that's sort of a big part of uh the night of the meek um we have a very unconventional santa at the center of this story but uh you know no less heartfelt um, so, uh, this, this is available as a print. Um, it is currently up in the face wide wheel shop. If you're interested, uh, you can find it there. I'm interested. Um, yeah, I, I, I love it. You know, the wonderful depiction of, of Art Carney as, uh, as the character of Corwin, Henry Corwin, who uh, of course is Santa Claus in the episode, um, and I written by Rod Serling, directed by Jack Smite. And I think this episode, it's funny because, you know, one of the pieces of trivia about the episode, and if you're watching it, you'll notice pretty much right away, it was shot on videotape. Yeah. Um, it was not uh, on, done on film as the rest of the series. There were about six episodes in season two that were shot on videotape and then kinescoped into, um, you know, film to, to, to be aired. And you can tell, obviously, it's got that sort of that live television, that soap opera-esque kind of feel because they the thought Doctor it was going to be cheaper. 60s feel, yeah. Right, right. And uh, the funny thing is, is that after doing this, they found that they only saved about $30,000, which does obviously sound like a lot of money. It is a lot of money even today. But uh, it was not enough to justify the change in the quality. The loss so they, of quality, yeah. Exactly. Again, um, you, have, you have folks that are thinking about the future you exactly that are thinking about the future of the show and they don't want to sacrifice that visual quality for you know for that kind of savings per episode so they they went back and they started filming directly on 35 millimeter again but you know that being said you know you might turn on this episode and if you're not used to seeing you know a kinescoped uh film uh you might sort of be like oh what what is this but you know what this episode is so engaging yeah. that you completely forget about it within and a few it, minutes. It actually, it, in a weird way, especially compared to the other episodes that were filmed this way, it works. There's well, something yeah. about the look of it that that feels right. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a funny kind of bit of happenstance because clearly it was not intended that way, but it just does it. There's something about it that really, really works. The other thing that was fascinating about the way that it ended up being shot is that they filmed it basically in like 10 minute chunks live, basically. 
And um, that was not always the way that they did the episodes, obviously. And 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 the fun thing about that is, is that you had actors like Jay Fiedler and um, Art Carney, obviously, especially who were used to that process, who had done yeah. a lot of live stuff. I mean, Art Carney, obviously, with the Honeymooners and, you know, had, had done plenty of other television and, and had, had done, um, you know, vaudeville and, and stage. And, and, and so he obviously had a background in kind of just doing that kind of thing. Um, and so it's fascinating the way that it all comes together. Uh, the, the story itself is, is so lovely. And even from the opening shot where we're in kind of the department store, we see the kids faces pressed up against the glass. We see the empty chair of Santa Claus. Like it's this really, everything is done so well. The storytelling, you know, without a line uttered, you know, without anything too overt, we're just told so much of the story until we, of course, come to rest on the sign saying that Santa will be back at six o'clock. Yeah. And then, of course, we get to the bar right? <laughs> and we see Santa in the Santa suit with the beard, Mr. Art Carney, drinking, drinking, drinking. Uh, the bartender and, and he certainly have a bit of an antagonistic relationship here. Yes. Uh, and it, again, so much of the story is told before a line is ever uttered. Right. And I, it's one of the things that I love so much about, you know, film and television, the, the, that visual medium is that you can tell a story without, you know, saying a word. And especially in a story like this, where you're going to say words, mm -hmm. the story that's told before you say those words loads everything that comes after with so much more. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. And the, yeah. And the atmosphere is just beautiful because of it. Yes, I agree. I, I, I love that you brought that up because something I particularly love about watching film and television from generally this era and, and earlier than this is that film filmmakers were so aware that what they were working in was primarily a visual medium. And part of that is because, you know, this, this was shot in, you know, uh, 1960. Um, and, you know, that's only, you know, 30 years removed from the advent of sound film. Um, and so you, you have a lot of professionals still working in the industry that remember what it's like to tell a story without dialogue. Um, how do you visualize a film if there are no words? Well, people did it for a long time before the advent of sound in film. Um, and you've got wonderful filmmakers uh, like Alfred Hitchcock who started their careers making silent films and then worked through the transition to talkies, but they never forget that, Hey, film is visual. And so if I can tell the audience something without words, then I should. And Absolutely. I will. Um, and I think this episode in particular, the, the entire opening, again, you know, the, the camera movements, seeing that empty chair, seeing the, you know, we'll be back at six o'clock sign um, and then transitioning to the bar. I mean, you know, that that's, that's all visual storytelling at its finest. And, you know, especially on a TV show that clearly is trying to, it's trying to save some money because it's, it has sort of this harebrained scheme right now to, <laughs> to shoot on video. Um, they're not letting that get in the way of their, visual presentation. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's great. And um, yeah, the, I think the episode charms right from the offset with the way that it handles the introduction of our protagonist. 
Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and again, all credit due to, to Jack Smite, the, the director of this episode, because a, there is an incredible amount of, of visual storytelling and he's very good at it. And, it, you know, it's funny because he got his start in television, but he did move on to film um, and, it, you know, was responsible for, for a number of, of really wonderful films, including the Paul Newman film Harper, um, which, which I'm a big fan of. And uh, I, I really enjoy a lot of that film because of its visual uh storytelling and, and and the way that he is able to do that um he also of course was responsible for airport 1975 and midway which were big box office hits in the mid 70s <laughs> right um but uh uh yeah just just kudos to him because again i think that he does an incredible job with this with this specific episode and he would direct um a few other episodes as well uh of the twilight zone but um you know, even even after the bar, when we go out onto the the street and the kids see Santa Claus, for instance, though that that is all wonderfully done, and then we get this beautiful scene with you know Santa and the kids, and Art Carney is so, so superb throughout this entire episode, and Jackie Gleason was on the record as saying like you know. Art Carney did 90% of the heavy lifting in the honeymooners and you get such a sense of what he is capable of as, as an actor throughout the course of this episode, because there are yeah. moments of comedy. There are moments of kind of lightheartedness, but it's all grounded. It all feels real. And there are, are these incredibly heavy, dark, uh, dramatic moments as well. And, and yet he never, he, he never lets it slide into, you know, melodrama. He never uh, uh, pushes too hard. He never goes over the top with any of it. And it's just such a beautiful performance from top to bottom. And there's no wonder that, you know, years later, he would win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a year that included Albert Finney, you know, Al Pacino for, for Godfather to Dustin Hoffman, uh, you know, as fellow nominees. Now, yeah. arguably, you could argue all day long about Pacino, you know, maybe deserving for Godfather 2 or whatever. Um, but but the fact is, is like, you know, it's a testament to the quality of actor that Art Carney was, not only this episode, but just the career that he would have in general. Yeah. And, and in this episode, yeah. he's doing all that behind this big mustache and beard. Yeah. I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, think about from an acting perspective, what a challenge that is. Um, because you have to find ways to emote in a different way. And he does so much acting with his eyes in this role. Um, his voice and his eyes yeah. are, I mean, the way that he uses that, that instrument is pretty yes. incredible. Absolutely. And, uh, it, it is a, it is a wonderful portrayal of intoxication as well, which Art Carney was no stranger to. You Absolutely. Know, he, yeah. He, he, he struggled with, you know, yeah, and, and struggling with at that time, from what I understand, I don't think he got sober until the seventies. Till the seventies, uh, yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. I but, mean, it's it's uh, yeah. I think that that's really well put, and um, I uh, I think that you know he really ties this this entire episode together with his performance. But there's some other really great performances peppered throughout as well. Um, Absolutely the actor who plays his boss at the department store. Um, for me, he's one of those, that guys from yeah. this era of film and television. And um, I remember the first time I saw this twilight zone, I went, Hey, I know him from of course, <laughs> an episode of star Trek, uh, yep. which he would do, I think seven or eight years later um, called Wolf in the fold in which he actually ended up playing uh, a manifestation of Jack the Ripper on a 
on an alien planet. Um, and so, you know, he's, uh, and I, I, do you know the actor's name? It's John, it's, John Fiedler. I think I said Jay I, earlier. I, I, okay. I meant John, John Fiedler. John Fiedler. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's again, he's one of these wonderful character actors, uh, that he's, he has such a, a, um, and especially early on in this episode, he has this great, like, sense of menace this like little middling menace mm-hmm. um and uh but again you know i think what i really love about his performance here in particular is there's a turn in that performance yeah and there's a turn in, in you know in the character and he's able to sort of pivot this character from somebody that you really don't like to somebody who's sort of charming by the end of it um and uh yeah i really really enjoyed that aspect of of uh, the performances too. Yeah. And he, and he is, he's remarkable. And uh, he's someone else who had a, a long career, um, in, in, in Hollywood, uh, beginning in, in the forties and going all the way up until 2005, um, wow. with, a, with a posthumous release in, um, Kronk's new groove. Uh, one of the other things that he's well known for, however, is he did a lot of work with Disney, um, a lot of voice work, and he's probably most famously known as the voice of, Piglet in Winnie the Pooh yes. starting in 1974 uh, he voiced Piglet all the way up until 2005 um, so yeah and he did another episode of the Twilight Zone as well Cavender is coming um, which is another brilliant episode uh, of the show um, from uh, what season season three um, okay. and uh, yeah he is he's fantastic in this episode and and, and he feels so right for that kind of just you know drunk on his own power um and 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 really just giving it to henry um and 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 he does it in this way it's so funny it's in the in the scene where he kind of you know kicks him to the curb because he's because he's drunk while he's being santa one of the kids that visits santa has this great line mom santa's loaded (laughs) (laughs) which again you know the the episode does have these moments of kind of you know dark humor and comedy and uh and he berates you know henry in front of everyone but when Henry kind of tries to turn it around and have his moment, you know, he's very, he's very adamant about like, you know, not in front of the kids, don't say anything in front of the kids. And it's right. just this, the, the hypocrisy that he right. gets to be mean to this person in front of others, but this person right. doesn't get to stand up for himself is it, it, it's really lovely. And it's, and it's a reminder of the way that, you know, Rod Serling was so wonderful at being able to, um, sometimes with a great deal of subtlety, sometimes, you know, maybe less so, but inject, you know, yeah, inject it within these episodes, these moments that felt very real and were very relatable for anyone that has ever, you know, been talked down to by a boss in front of others and not had the opportunity to, to respond. Yeah. I really like the dialogue in that scene. And I like particularly that, um, you know, Carney's character, he sort of draws a line where he's like, I understand that I'm out of line here. And what I want to be clear about is that I wasn't rude to that woman. Yep. I, I, that's, I didn't do that. And then he launches into his sort of, you know, soapbox about like, this should be a time of patience and of kindness towards people. Yeah. And, you know, and again, like he's Love, not charity saying, like, and compassion. Right. I, I, he's not saying like, I didn't do anything wrong. He's like, I'm here. And I'm drunk and I apologize for that, but I can't apologize for being rude because I was not. Um, She's being rude, actually. (laughs) Um, 
It, yeah, and, and and another striking piece of kind of visual storytelling is that during this monologue, you know, I think that it would be very easy to just leave the camera on Art Carney, but that's not what Smite does. Smite yes. actually he pans out to the faces of these children watching yep. him. And there's one child in particular who when 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 Corwin returns to the department store drunk before he gets kind of, you know, fired, he plays with the model train set and yep. standing next to him is is a young uh child of color and you know 1960 america television that wasn't something you saw very often and during this monologue when he gives the famous line the meek shall inherit the earth um or excuse me what he actually says is just on one christmas i'd like to see the meek inherit the earth smite again doesn't keep the camera on carney he pans to that child of color And it's yeah. a and it's a striking moment, and it's a very clear message uh, um, that that again the way the Twilight Zone could be so subversive for its time, yeah. um, and yet do it in ways that would not seem, you know, too heavy handed or too overt, so that the sponsors wouldn't get too pissed off, right. you know, so yeah. that so that John Smith in Atlanta wouldn't write a letter to CBS saying like how dare you, you know, and right. and and right. it's really it's a really lovely moment. Yeah, and that, yeah, that moment that it was not lost upon me. So I, you know, and if I'm watching this in 2023 and I, and I get the, uh, and I get the, you know, metaphor that's being woven into that scene, like, yeah, I can imagine folks in 1960, uh, watching it live on television would be, would be picking that up too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, really well done. Um, yeah, the, the, the episode starts in a really dark place. Um, and, you know, to the point where, you, you know, if you're watching this for the first time, you're not quite sure if this is going to be one of those episodes where things get darker and darker uh, because there are a number of episodes that are like that. But almost as a Christmas miracle, uh, <laughs> you know, this incredible things thing happens to this guy and he finds this magic, you know, seemingly magic sack where he can produce whatever presents uh, folks around him want. Um, and he, you know, he basically gets to act as a real Santa Claus for the night. And those scenes were so wonderful because again, Art Carney, he just personifies joy and it's joy simply from the act of being able to, to give. And it's specifically, you know, to connect with the monologue that he gave, you know, talking about, you know, I see such, such need and such desperation of the people who live in my neighborhood this yeah. time of year. Um, he's able to give a little something back to those folks, those, you know, the meek, um, as, as he, as he puts it. And, um, you know, our Carney just pl- plays those moments um, with his heart on his sleeve. And, it, and it's really, yeah, it's really incredible to, to witness. Yeah. And I, I actually, you know, I, I want to quote that line because you, you brought it up and it is such a beautiful line. He he says, all I know is that I'm an aging, purposeless relic of another time. And I live in a dirty rooming house on a street filled with hungry kids and shabby people where the only thing that comes down the chimney on Christmas Eve is more poverty. <sighs> yeah. 63 years later. Everything's better. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I, I, I think that, yeah, that there, there's there's something about the way that, you know, this character and the way that Rod Serling has written it. And of course, the way that Art Carney portrays it is that, you know, he connects it to 
there's a sense of community that mm-hmm. it is not about like one man's journey, you know, that, that, that for, he ends up becoming this vessel of the Christmas spirit of magic, of charity, compassion, and love, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and it, and it's fascinating because he's able to spread that outwards and, um, and, 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 and that's kind of what it's always about for him. You know, he, he even, he even blames like his drunkenness and his sadness and his depression on what he sees around him. It's not right. something necessarily from within. And, and like you said earlier, you know, he, he calls his drinking indefensible. I can either, I can either drink or I can weep. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, talk about a line like, wow. Um, yeah. So much of that dialogue hits and, you know, Again, it's, I think sort of what's incredible and sort of the tragedy of, of you know, an episode like this, as you were alluding to. Yeah, 63 years later and, you know, the social commentary that exists is still very poignant today. Um, you know, Rod Serling and his team, like, you know, they're they're writing these episodes. They're, you know, the same with... Uh, a television show like Star Trek, which also aired in the 60s. I mean, these are tumultuous times and, you know, you're on network television and you're trying to find ways to tell stories, to elevate these ideas, these these virtues, um, these, these morals, um, and you're hoping that you're going to make a change. And, you know, and, and, you know, in a lot of ways they did, but we're still, you know, we're still experiencing a lot of these same overarching societal issues today uh that we were back in the 60s and you know some might argue that they feel a bit more amplified now than they have in a long time um and uh for me like connecting to our discussion earlier we're talking about the studio system and you know corporations um taking the reins of these you know artistic ventures there are a lot of storytellers that are needed today to be telling these kind of stories. And we can only hope that the platforms still exist where this kind of storytelling can take place. And, and you know, thankfully it is, but you know, if it becomes less about the work and more about the bottom line, then, you know, these, these kind of stories and the storytellers that make them possible, they, you know, they're in danger. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that is, that is absolutely true. And I think that one of the things that is so clear about watching a show like the twilight zone in general, but an episode like this specifically is that the need for this kind of storytelling, um, arises when we find ourselves in situations as we are now, you, one could argue that the need always exists for storytelling of this kind. Um, you know, and, and I, 63 years ago, it, it's funny. I mean, I'll, I'll be dropping this episode. Um, if you're, if you're watching it or listening to it, um, the day that it drops on December 23rd, which is indeed the, the day that this episode aired, um, you know, it was shot very quickly. Um, and it was, you know, edited and, and ready to go very quickly. In fact, I, I believe it was filmed only a few weeks before it aired. Um, a little bit about the genesis of the episode that I find very funny is that Rod Serling, of course, was Jewish. His wife was a Unitarian and, um, and Serling always enjoyed celebrating Christmas with the family, um, you know, with his family and, and, 
he was always fascinated by the holiday. He even admitted to having a little bit of Christmas envy um, <laughs> because growing up Jewish, you know, he, they weren't celebrating right. Christmas. Um, but apparently uh, Buck Houghton, who was the producer for, for uh, Twilight Zone, said that the episode came about because Rod Serling wanted to see Art Carney play Santa Claus. <laughs> And that was the the inspiration that led to to the writing of this episode. That's I amazing. love stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're Rod Serling, you can make that happen. Like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, absolutely. Um, you know, it's worth noting just just real quick. I don't want to go into too much detail. That'll be for a later episode. But yeah, I mean, at this point in time, Rod Serling did have a lot of power and a lot of creative control in television. Twilight Zone was a very popular show. He had already written a number of uh, incredible pieces for like you know, Playhouse ninety and, and that sort of stuff. And he had you know, gotten generated a lot of acclaim. Got to the point yeah. where he could kind of just write his own ticket. Um, you know, in, in television and in Hollywood and uh, and twilight zone was what he wanted to do and um you know at this point he there were he certainly always framed it as there were constant battles with sponsors and networks and that sort of stuff but you get the genuine sense from those that were around him that ultimately he was able to do just about anything he wanted that there was that there weren't that many times when anything came down on him and said you can't do this um we're not going to allow you to do this and and it just shows that you know i mean he, he did he commanded a lot of power and respect at that specific point in time especially as it pertains to this show um you know he has his his, his bumpers uh, are fantastic and i love the fact that of course in the opening narration um you know we see him you know walking up behind uh, art carney and the children uh um you know, and Sterling standing there on the sidewalk in the snow, uh, in his coat. And uh, it's just, it's just a lovely image. And it, it, there's something about it that, especially for fans of the Twilight Zone, you just look at that and it's like, it's Christmas, you know, right. Yeah, <laughs> which might sound silly, right. but it just feels that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This and this episode does exude that spirit, which, you know, I think is it's one of the, you know, one of the best things about it. And it's just so charming and it's charming yes. to the end. And, you know, the twist is, is wonderful. This, this man, you know, all, all he wants to do is, you know, get, get the chance to be generous, uh, you know, the way that he has just experienced. And then he suddenly finds himself in the actual role of, of Santa Claus. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, you know, it's, I think it's an episode that, you know, if, uh, if this was, I, I think about this a lot. Like we, we have such a treasure trove of past media that a lot of folks just aren't familiar with. And, you know, we air, it's a wonderful life every year. You know, we air some films like, you know, a, a Christmas story will air for 24 hours. <laughs> um, I love you know, Christmas you do, story. <laughs> there you go. Right. We do a special presentation of this episode on, you know, on its, uh, anniversary. Um, you know, I think people are going to connect to it. I think a new generation is going to connect to it because even if it's in black and white, and even if we are used to maybe different pacing and different sort of visual storytelling cues, I think that, you know, a, a night of television featuring this episode, I think is, is, is impacting for audiences now as it, as it was in 1960. So I, I you know, I'd love to see the network sort of um, leverage some of, some of this wonderful media that they have under their umbrella and, you know, introduce it 
on television to a new audience and give it, give it that spotlight. Um, I think that, I think that that would be cool, but you know, yeah, I completely agree, you know, and I think one of the things about the Twilight Zone in general in an episode like this, you mentioned pacing, like the the format of the Twilight Zone allowed the pace to always be pretty. I, I mean, there was there was an alacrity to it that that, you know, certainly you could level the argument uh, towards other shows of the time, in particular, hour long dramas and that sort of stuff that maybe it wasn't, you know, uh, as swift. And 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 sure. with this episode, you know, it does. It flies by. And, um, you know, a couple quick things that I wanted to mention before we get out of here is that um, there's there's another character named Bert um, played by. Bert Mustin, um, actually only credited as old man, but, but, uh, um, Henry refers to him as Bert when he sees him and, you know, we see him earlier, um, in the, uh, uh, you know, what would you call that? The, the, the mission the house. The mission yeah. The shelter, house. uh, with, with the derelicts and, um, you know, he comes in and he kind of tells you that Santa Claus is coming and, uh, you know, and he comes in and he distributes the gift. Well, later on after, uh, Henry has, has finally, emptied the bag all the gifts have been given you know everyone's gotten what they wanted you know Bert comes out and has this beautiful line about um you know how Henry hasn't gotten a gift himself and Henry's response is if he had his choice of any gift at all he thinks that he'd he wished he could do this every year and that's when of course he goes and he finds the elf and the reindeer right. and the sleigh and it's just so magical you know yeah. and now his wishes come true he's the real Santa Claus he gets in the sleigh he sets off uh, yep. The cop Flaherty and Dundee, his boss, see the sleigh go in the Shabby sky. Yeah. yeah, it's this beautiful moment. And of course, they, you know, they're questioning, like, should should we tell anybody? And Flaherty, of course, is just sort of like, you know, I get fired for being drunk on the right. job as a cop. Right. And 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 you know, it's wonderful because. Um, Dundee ends up actually, you know, even kind of giving himself over to the Christmas spirit yes, and says that yeah. they're going to go home, have some hot coffee with a little brandy in it, and they'll thank right. God for miracles. And it's just, it's go. just so lovely. A um, wonderful note to end on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I, what I want to end on is, um, is actually to, to, you know, hopefully not get any copyright violations or anything. I'm not going to use the actual narration, but, but I do want to just, uh, uh, quote Rod Serling's closing narration here. A word to the wise, to all the children of the 20th century or 21st, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers or walk with a cane and comb their beards, there's a wondrous magic to Christmas and there's a special power reserved for little people. In short, there's nothing mightier than the meek and a Merry Christmas to each and all. I just think it's so perfect. A Merry Christmas to you. A Merry Christmas to you. Last piece of trivia. That was cut, actually. That that A Merry Christmas line was cut uh, in the 80s, and it was excluded from reruns, VHS releases, and the original um, Twilight Zone Definitive Edition DVD set. Um, It was was restored for the Blu-ray and for the Netflix, and you can tell the sound quality is a little bit different. But I'm so glad that it's back because it's wonderful to hear Rod say and a Merry Christmas to each and all. Um, but yes, Merry Christmas to cut? you, JJ. I don't, I don't know. know. That was cut. I mean, no idea. It's really a Christmas episode. You can't, you can't right. get past it. <laughs> right. Our party's in a Santa Claus suit the whole time. Yeah. Sorry, folks. It's Christmas. Secrets <laughs> out. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you so much, JJ. Thank you for thank the you. for the brilliant print. I, I'm I'm going to get that one. I cannot wait to have that. And uh, I hope ever, everyone else uh, rushes out and orders it as well. You can find that over at jjlindell.com slash fwwshop. 
um, uh, along with all of the other merch. If you're watching this video on YouTube, I'm wearing the hat right now, uh, and I'm actually wearing the Secret History shirt. It's not just a shill. It's because I'm having a bad hair day and because this shirt is actually really comfortable. I'm serious. Like, it's, it's yeah, nice they are, quality. Right? They're yeah. very nice. Um, so you can go over there and you can find that. Um, if you want to support the show, that's great. But before you do that, take a look around your community. See if there's something you can do, especially this time of year. Donate some time. Donate a toy to a toy drive, uh, some, some canned goods to a food bank, whatever you can do. If you have money to spare, please do that. Um, you know, let, let's right some wrongs and make the world a better place. Um, I think that, you know, we can do that all year round and, and spread a little uh, joy and love and compassion wherever we go. Um, if after all that, you, you would love to support the show, I would love to have your support. It uh, allows to pay for hosting services and, and all the things that we use to create the show. So um, you can head over to patreon.com um, slash fates wide wheel. You can sign up at any dollar amount. You'll get access to the behind the scenes videos and the creation of the prints that JJ has been doing for not only for quantum leap, but also the doctor who print this twilight zone print and, and more to come um as well as some other goodies that will certainly be along the way in closing uh, i just want to say happy holidays merry christmas to those that celebrate thank you so so much for listening for watching for liking for subscribing um for being a part of this community this fandom and as fates wide wheel continues to explore more avenues for sticking around joining uh and and being a part of all of this thank you to everyone who has made the eliza taylor interview um the most popular of of all videos uh this year um um the second one even more so than her first one. So uh, I appreciate that. I know she appreciates that as well. And um, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Stay safe out there. And always remember to leap responsibly. <laughs>